Um, look at our sermon scripture text. It starts uh, in Mark, Mark 3.20, and then we'll skip to John. This, this is given right after uh, Christ named his apostles. So the he we're talking about is Christ. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven of the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but his guilt is an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And now we skip ahead to the crucifixion in John 19. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, Standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home, own home. The word of the Lord. Thanks Pray with me. Uh, thanks be to God indeed. Thank you for your word, the scriptures, and for Christ the word who was with God and who is God. Now, Lord, as we look at this specific text and how it is interpreted by the rest of your scripture, would you open our hearts to hear and make application to our lives as we live them day to day? Please lead Pastor Addison as he works with your word. May he be true to it and wise. Keep him and us, the hearers, in your care always. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks, Mike. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. Good to open God's Word together. It's always a delight to do that. And this morning we continue pondering a treasure, pondering the treasure. Christ. I love the bulletin cover. Such a beautiful picture of just that admiration that Mary has for her son. It's been an interesting time to be thinking about family and in my own family. We've introduced uh, Sullivan into the world just uh, three weeks ago this past Thursday. And so I get some of the, the things and I, the feelings that Mary would have had for an infant son 
certainly to a different degree because my infant son is not the Messiah, and I know that to be true, um, though I'm sure they still share some things in common, like crying in the middle of the night. I'm sure Jesus did that as well. But what an interesting way to look at family through the eyes of Mary. And again, this morning in the Lord's providence, we had a power outage yesterday, and so more families are gathered in this sanctuary because there's not nursery, there's not other places for them to be, and so we get to ponder uh, just what God has for us as we think about family. A number of years ago, there was a study done in the Barna Research Group. Some of you may know this, and it's not really, you know, real grand news or anything surprising, but they did a study and they were seeking to answer uh, a single question. And that question was, what most influences the self-identity of Americans? And you could probably make a list that's pretty accurate to what they found. Things like religious, belief, uh, state that they live in uh, influences what they believe. The college or university that they may have gone to also would encourage that and influence that. Just their own ethnic identity influences it as well. But the number one thing that influences American self-identity is family. 62% of the people that answered that research said family is the thing that influences who I am today the most. And again, that's probably not surprising. You spend a lot of time with your family. Uh, you spend uh, lots of years. You learn from them. As I age, I see more and more of my dad in me. Usually it's bad dad jokes that I see. I realize he had a lot of those growing up, and I have just as many, if not more, of those too. There's ways that we see our family's influence in our own lives. I mean, family, think about the way that family uh, bonds tend to work. They're stronger than the bonds that we have with any other people just because they're our blood relatives. Outside of the most dysfunctional families, family members stick together. They stand up for one another. This is some, some quotes coming out of that Barna study. Children look out for parents, and parents guard the interests of their children. In married relationships, husbands and wives share secrets between themselves that no one else on earth is privy to. Brothers and sisters put up with more from their siblings than they do from outsiders. And I certainly know that to be true in my own household. I don't think my kids would put up with the things that they do to one another from other people. Family members also tend to be willing to do things for their families that they would not do for even their closest friends. It's no wonder that family tends to rank the highest amongst American population in identity formation. And of course, that's not just true for us. It would have been true in the time of Jesus as well. The Jewish family unit was very close. I would even argue probably far closer than our family units are today. And they did business together. You had farms and agricultural things and, and marketplace endeavors that were shared and handed down from generation to generation. You would worship together. You would recite all of the scriptures together morning, evening, and in the middle of the day you would probably live together. Even far into your adulthood, you would probably live with your parents. And today, that is something that we just kind of balk at. And they still live at home with their parents. But in the Jewish culture, that would have been okay. 
So I would argue that in the time of Jesus, the family structure, the family unit, how close they were is far more than what you and I experience today. It's not uncommon to have families that have members scattered across the country. That's probably true for most of you. You've got brothers and sisters that live in different states, maybe even different countries. I have no blood relatives in Michigan. They all primarily live in Kansas City. And that's not uncommon today, but it would have been very uncommon in the time of Jesus. So why do we bring that up? Well, I think it's important as we look at Mark 3 and John 19 and the way that Jesus talks about family and we look at family through the eyes of Mary, we realize that we are challenged to think about what our expectations of family are, especially during the holiday season. See, we're both challenged and expanded. Family looks different. It is different based on what Jesus says in Mark, in Mark 10, Mark 3, Mark 10. So when you read through the gospel narratives, you encounter a fair bit of family. Of course, family New Testament. It looked similar, but it also looked different. And Mary's story and experience is both unique and typical. She would have raised Jesus in the way that most Jewish families would have wanted to raise their kids, memorizing the Torah and the scriptures, going to the temple and the synagogue, hearing those different things, wanting him to take on a craft or a trade that would have benefited the family. Those were all things that typical Jewish families did. But in the same sense, it was very unique because her son was the Messiah. He was going to become king. Not king like Herod, who was ruling over Judea in that time, not a king by position, but a king nonetheless, the king of the line of David, as you've heard in the Old Testament, a king of the, a man after God's own heart, kingly in nature, substance and authority. See, they long awaited, the Jews long awaited this king, and this was the son that Mary was raising you see, it's this very fact that Jesus becomes king that we have to pay close attention to what he says about family. And what he wants us to do is he wants us to pursue the family of God wholeheartedly. He wants to expand for us who we think about family is and challenge us how we love those people. He also wants to challenge the way we live within our family structures. But he also wants us to lament the brokenness and the messiness of family, and we certainly can't bubble over that truth this time of year. Then ultimately, Jesus and Mary's story, they pull us back to look at the Lord at the center of the family structure, and that's where we're headed today as we work through these texts. Mike asked me a question this morning when we were working through our, our liturgy. And he asked if there was anything he needed to know, and I failed to tell him that we need to read Mark 3, 31 through 35. It was the one paragraph that we didn't read, and it helps gain us some context for our passage. And so let's just read it again here real fast. That helps us understand, because what we want to do is look at what Jesus has to say about the family in that moment, and then come back in John 19 and see what he says to Mary there as well. So Mark 3, starting in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. This is just following right after that incident that we had read about him uh, exchanging with the, the children of men and, and with the Pharisees. 
The brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What a challenging statement for us to read. See, Jesus, through his love for people, expands who we think about as family. You and I, when we use the terminology family, we think mother and and father, kin, relatives, people that are related to us by blood or by adoption, our family of origin, the people that we uh, grew up and are most influenced by. But Jesus here makes a statement that says, My mothers and my brothers are these people right here sitting with me who do the will of God. It's a different definition of family. I want to take a moment just to talk about how tricky of a topic this is to talk about in this season. We talk about love and family because there's a portion of us here when we think about family, love is probably one of the first words that we think of. We adore our families. We love them. We're influenced by them, and we couldn't be prouder of that. We love to see them in holidays. We love to talk to them. We share deep things with them. They really are our closest people in our lives, but there is definitely a portion of us, if not all of us, Our family is just messy and difficult and hard for lots of different reasons. Perhaps it's because you lost a loved one this past year, and this is the first time you're going to celebrate a holiday without them. That's hard. So we talk about family, this hits you in a different way. Think about loss first. Some of us have difficult relationships with our parents for various reasons, almost too innumerable to mention, but that relationship is tough. Some of us may not know our blood relatives. We've been adopted into a family. What a beautiful thing that is, but it's also hard. So I want to be careful when we talk about family to just mention during this season and through this text the difficulty of it But I hope by the end of this, the beauty that we see that God calls us a family together. So one of the first observations, we have to set that aside and we're going to work on that as we continue through this. One of the first observations that we make is that Jesus calls us to love God's expanded family. So this is where Jesus and his words in Mark 3 and 10, you can look at that another time, uh, are, are really helpful. And two things for us to consider about God's expanded family. First, Jesus says that family is primarily the people that do God's will. And we'll, we'll deal with that little statement, the people that are doing God's will. Secondly, but first, uh, family is not primarily the folks that you have dinner around the table with, according to Jesus. Now, he's not putting those family units aside and saying they don't matter. They do matter. They influence one another. But henceforth in this sermon and this time, we're going to talk about family as the family of God, the people in here that you look at. When you turn around, you look, and they may not look like you. They may not act like you. They may believe different things culturally and societally, but this is the family of God, according to Jesus. We are a family We're brought together by Christ himself. So when 
we go throughout the scriptures, it's no wonder that Paul and others use language like brothers and sisters, brethren, beloved, so frequently because they heard what Jesus said. They saw what he lived and they believed that to be true and it influenced the way that they talked about their communities. Those epistles that Paul wrote and others wrote, they are so, they're just an outworking of what it means to be the family of God, challenging one another to live accordingly. When you exclude the gospel accounts and you look at um, the rest of the, the, the New Testament, I just looked at one Greek word, brother, which can be all-encompassing to mean, you know, like my brothers and my sisters. It was used over 210 times in those letters, in that small section. Because they really believed that the family of God was so important, worth challenging, worth calling out. Just think about our last series as we went through Philippians, and Paul was calling people out by name sometimes, and certainly by practice, and saying, look, beloved, come together. Act like family. Live together as family members. That word that he uses, beloved, I think we talked about this during that time. It's um, it has that familial term. So the original hearers would have heard Paul say, beloved, they would have thought, oh, he's talking to me like a family member. He is talking to me like the people that I would eat supper with, the people that I would do business with. He's talking to me like a family member. These close relationships, they're there that Jesus says, this is the unit that draws us together. This is an expanded idea of what family is. So when we use that language here, it's because we believe as we look at one another, this is the family of God. And the second thing that I want us to think about in terms of how we love is who qualifies as the family of God. Now, this is a tricky thing to talk about, and so I'm, I don't want to, for any moment, put myself in a position where I'm saying you're in and you're out. That is not what I want to do. But what I want to do is explore the idea of what Jesus says, those who do the will of God, from a 30,000-foot view first, what does he mean? And then in our second main point, what does it look like to live that way? So what does that mean, those who do the will of God? Well, essentially what he's talking about, he's talking about a union with Christ. This is language that Jesus wouldn't have introduced because he would have been talking about himself, but that Paul introduces and talks about frequently in the New Testament is this unitedness that we have to Jesus that then unites us to one another. It's a beautiful concept, and to use it as a subpoint is really unfair. It deserves its own sermon and sermon series, but essentially what we want to look at is the, the idea that Jesus was saying in John 14 through 17, I'm going to introduce the helper, the Holy Spirit, to come and to dwell and to be with you. The third person of the Trinity, fully God, is going to come. He's going to dwell. He's going to live inside of you. And that's what's going to knit you together as a family. And that couldn't happen without Christ. And so when Christ died and rose and sat at the right hand of the Father in Acts, we see that he sends the Holy Spirit to come and be a part of the people. They can understand one another as they're speaking in these weird languages. He's knitting them together, united together by Christ. This is what 1 John 4 says about this. So we know that we abide in him, Christ, 
and Christ in us because he's given us his spirit. So the spirit dwells in us. That's how we know who's a part of the family of God. Dwelling is a simple way of saying taking up residence in us. See, this is foundational for our understanding of who we are to love. It's like the question, who's my neighbor? Well, you've got lots of neighbors. And Jesus stretches that as well. And he is stretching us to think about who is my brother, who is my sister. It's those with whom the Spirit dwells in and resides in. It's those that are seeking, as Mike said in our worship, that are responding to God's call to worship him. And they are moving towards God. And again, a note of caution, we are not to be the ones to play God and decide who that is. But there's a reality in that there is something that marks those people. So those who do the will of God are those who are united together in Christ through the Spirit. They seek God and they want to follow Jesus, which leads us to the second thing, the second observation as we look through Mary's family structure and the words of Jesus, is that there's a real living into this reality. There's a real appropriateness to how we respond to God's call and the truth that we are a family unit. As we do the will of God, what might that look like? Well, a simple way that Paul talks about it is, you know, we have, or the, we're people that are filled with peace, joy, love, patience, kindness, steadfastness, that ring a bell, gentleness, self-control, Galatians 5 language. So he's redefined the terms of who we are, and we know that by the way that we live, because there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor Scythian. There's free or barbarian all of us together, the family of God, live as the family of God. So what's one of the couple things that we learn about what it means and what it looks like to live as the family of God? Multiple times Jesus says they're doing the will of God. Ultimately, that means that they're fo we're following Jesus. That's the primary way that we are identified as the family of God, that we follow Jesus. See, that group was only unique that was sitting in front of him because they were there sitting, listening to his teaching as they were advocating. They trusted in him. They believed in what he was doing, which was different than what his family believed. They came to the door and said, hey, we want Jesus. And they said, hey, Jesus, your family's outside. And that's when he redefines the whole thing. Why did they want to do that? Well, they didn't fully believe in what he was doing. They didn't trust in his ministry. It's why it's helpful to have the context here in Mark 3, verses 20 and 21. When his family heard about the things he was doing, what did they say? He's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. They didn't think that he was living into that call to be a Messiah. You see, the Jewish, uh, both the Pharisees and other folks, believed that the Messiah was going to be something very specific in particular. They thought it would be more like someone like a King Herod, someone who's going to come in and overthrow the, the current government, the current ruling powers, that they would come with a mighty fist and strong army. But Jesus wasn't doing that. He was gathering in homes with sinners, with people he was supposed to be staying away from, for the people that were the family of God. And he was teaching them an upside-down kingdom. 
And those people responded to him. And they were marked and called the family of God because they were believing and trusting in who he is. So the response of the crowd who sought his presence and gathered around him, doubtless to hear his teaching, they reflected their acceptance of him. You see, Matthew and Luke also help us understand what it means uh, to be marked by this, doing the will of God. They expand this in their, uh, their narratives of this as well. Um, Matthew in Matthew 12 refers to, it, to the people that are there as the disciples. We know that language. It's language we use very frequently. It's language we use to talk about people who are following Jesus, seeking to live a life akin to that. And then Luke, and Luke 8, identifies the mothers and the brothers on the basis of those who hear the word of God and do it. They hear and do the word of God. That's what it means to live as the family of God. So what does that mean? What's a practical thing? Well, Paul in 1 Timothy 3 kind of talks about this. He says, when I come to you, but I can't, I'm I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So there's practical outworkings of this truth, and Jesus is our guide for this. As the one who both expands the family and the one with whom we are marked when we follow him as the family of God, we just seek to live the way that Jesus did. And it sounds super simple to say that, and I didn't really think about how that would sound saying it out loud, but he dined with sinners. He welcomed people that weren't just his blood relatives into meals and to parties. He healed the sick. He cared for people, again, that are not related to him, but are a part of his community, people who are seeking to follow him. He sacrificed everything for those people. And so we tease those things out in our own lives. What does it mean for us to live according to following Jesus? Well, simply put, we dine with people who aren't just our family. We invite folks into our midst, especially this time of year. Think about those folks who have lost family members, who don't have a family to necessarily go home to because maybe they're a college student or someone who can't travel home to be with family for the holidays, we're challenged to welcome those people in, not just as another person at the table, but as a family member, which then changes the way we talk and act around one another, the questions that we engage and ask, the way that we challenge and hold one another up, the language that we use. I think that one's particularly challenging for us in this day and age. If you're not believing exactly what I believe, no matter what it is, whether it's politics, whether it's societal norms or beliefs, whether it's certain things, then you're not with me. And I'm going to use certain language that's cutting and harsh, regardless of whether you believe in Jesus or not. But when the family of God, when people follow Christ, the language that we use within our family is not one that cuts down, but one that builds up. Just another couple of practical examples during this season, one that we've just um, 
we've been experiencing recently as we had a kid. We have a take them a meal program here, ministry. People have been bringing us meals. It's fantastic. It's a great way to get to know people. You come into the home, you get to meet a new baby or, or whatever the occasion is, check up on people. I mean, you love people like you would love your own family, but not only, it's not only for those reasons. You just think about the things that it helps out with. It helps that you don't have to do the dishes. Family members help one another with dishes. They help one another with finances, and the grocery budgets are helped by these sorts of things. It's just the love and care that we show for one another through simple, ordinary, mundane type of things. When we think about loving our family, we don't have to think radical. We think ordinary. We think about the love that we show just in the passing hallway or at the kitchen table. That's the kind of love we are called to show one another in this season, because that's the kind of love that Jesus showed to his disciples and the ones that followed him. And so we live that out as a part of our following Jesus. But of course, in our third L, as we think about what it means to pursue God's family, we have to be able to pursue God's family through lament. Because, as we mentioned, family is broken. In Mark 3, we get a picture of this straight away. They think Jesus has lost his mind. They want to come bring him out for different reasons. They don't quite get it at the time. And we lament that. Our family, at times, doesn't always get it. Mary's family is one of complexity. Jesus' brothers denied him during his ministry. John 7, you can read how they just didn't even consider the things that he was doing. They didn't believe him. We see other places in the gospel narratives of the hurt that happens amongst people that we would think are even a part of the family of God. Think about Judas, part of the inner circle, someone who looked the part and acted the part, but caused great hurt and pain to his family of God. Think about the situations, Philippians, that we already mentioned Paul's calling brothers and sisters to love one another in Christ because apparently they weren't showing and living that love. Families have brokenness. We don't have to look far to witness that. It makes this time of year difficult. See, but it's not just brokenness out there. There is brokenness here in the way that we treat one another. I've been reminded or perhaps it's just been put plainly in front of me as I've listened through a recent story of a church in the Pacific Northwest. I'm sure most of you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, there's a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's a really interesting thing to listen to. And I'm not here to sort of throw them under the bus, but to just observe and to learn and to see how the family of God can hurt one another. It's not just our family of origin that hurts us, but it can be this family too. And we need to lament that. We need to grieve it. To see and to feel and to know that it's painful, that people here have been hurt by other people here. And so we mourn that brokenness because God calls us to lament that. Our lament It's not just a moment to grieve, not just a moment to have sorrow, but a moment to trust in the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God. So when we lament our families, 
We're doing this out of trust of who our firm rock is. I love the way that an author talks about the act of lament, what it is and what it does for us. It says this, lament is different than just crying out because lament is a form of prayer. It is more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain and it has a unique purpose, trust. It is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, and sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our confidence in God. See, it's God that draws us together as a family, and it's God that we return to when our family hurts us. We lament those things, and we do that trying to find the best way to capture this in the letter L is Lord. We come back to Jesus. We come back to the Lord. We come back to Christ, the Messiah. Mary's story and Jesus' words about family remind us that we just have to pursue Christ above and beyond everything else. When family hurts, when we fail to live it out, but when we do live it out and those things are going well, why? It's because we're responding to the love and to the joy and the mercy and the grace that we have felt and experienced through our Lord. We come back to Jesus at the cross like Mary did in John 19, where he says, look, this is your mother. This is your brother. You are family. Mary finally saw what Jesus was doing and who he was. Her story is fantastic. I'm excited for this week's devotions. You should really plug into those because it helps track some of Mary's story a bit better and how she understood this idea of Jesus as her biological son and also the son, the Messiah. Even in Acts 1, as they're all sitting there, the brothers begin to get it. They're there. They understand through his ministry what he was doing And they return to the Lord just as Mary does at the cross to see this family knit together by this person, this baby that we are anticipating to be born, this man that grew up in a Jewish household with Jewish customs, memorizing the scriptures, who became the Messiah, who healed, who loved, who lived. We come back to the cross because our brother was crucified Yet we have hope because of what he's done. We come back to Jesus, the firstborn of our brothers, as Romans 8 says, verse 29. Jesus, the firstborn of many, the new Adam, drawing people together and redefining what family means. It's Jesus, the mighty king, who brought our family together. It's Jesus, the wonderful counselor, who comforts us through difficulty, hurt, and our laments. It's Jesus, the prince of peace, who defeats sin and death finally, introducing shalom, peace to the family. It's Jesus, our eternal savior, who welcomes the many and binds them together by his life, his death, and his resurrection He died on behalf of us that we might be able to not only taste sin no more someday, but to walk with one another and to have a community that we can call family. It's this child who was born to us through Mary that we come back to. and We pursue him as we pursue our family. It's Jesus who helps us understand what it looks like to call one another's brothers and sisters because he was her brother. Let's pray. Father, what an 
a word that we use for you as we talk about this idea of family, to think about what your word has to say. You are our father, Jesus, our brother. And we are a family knit together by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. What an invitation to think about the gospel and what it does. It has so many implications for our lives. And this morning we see as we anticipate the birth of our King, that we're knit together as a family. Of course, that rings true for us here at Christ Church. Brothers and sisters lock arms in many different ways and comfort one another and love one another, walk with one another. But even beyond our walls, others who are marked by doing the will of God, by the Spirit dwelling in them, their union with Christ, are our brothers and our sisters. We think about those who are serving as missionaries across the globe, our brothers and sisters pouring their lives out for the sake of the gospel to help others see that they have a family across the globe, believe similar things to them, trust in Jesus the way that they do, and that shapes our lives for today and for eternity. We lift them up and pray for them, Lord, that they would just feel that familial love today. Maybe from us, but certainly from others, but most importantly from you. They will be reminded that they are not alone. Father, would you impress upon our hearts the good news of the gospel, that Jesus is king, and he has come to redefine so many things in his upside-down kingdom his love for us is so deep that he would die, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might have life in him and life together as a family. But Father, through this text and through these words, we pray that you alone are glorified and that Christ's name is made and raised high pray this in his name, in his name alone. Amen.